I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. I'm going to toss it over to our hosts, Micah and Josiah Keneally. Hey guys, it's Josiah, and before we dive into today's episode, we want to share something exciting with our Young Adults Today fam. On March 4th and 5th, 2022, we will be having our third annual conference. So we want to invite you and your team in person this year to Minneapolis, Minnesota for this opportunity as leaders to rally together with other young adult ministry leaders from across the country. You can find out more details and register today at www.youngadults.today. Now for today's episode. What's up, guys? Hope you're feeling alive right now. I'm Micah Keneally, and this is my co-host. Josiah Keneally. Yes. So welcome to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching the next generation in our world today. What a privilege and opportunity is to tune in to your earbuds, to your iPhone, to your podcasting, wherever you're listening, whatever you're doing. We just hope that you find this encouraging, and we hope that you get involved in the process. Josiah, how can they get involved if they're just tuning in for the very first time? What does that mean? Totally. We drop brand new episodes. There's a library of over 125 conversations about just that reaching the next generation in our world today. It's wherever you are tuning in as well as YouTube. New episodes drop Monday morning early. So thanks for rating, leaving us a review on iTunes. It really helps as well as subscribing and then sharing this content with other leaders. It helps us reach more leaders with the message of young adults today. Yeah. And we have an amazing guest and somebody joining us today that we've been praying for. Their research has impacted our approach in ministry. It's broken our hearts in certain areas and spurred us on all at the same time as we want to reach the next generation. So Josiah, who do you want to welcome to the show today? I'll introduce him in just a second, but I want to do just that. Welcome to Dr. George Barna. Thanks for joining us today. I'm so disappointed with that buildup. I couldn't wait to find out who your guest was. I, I really wanted to. It's like, this is going to be great. Yeah. It, is, it is going to be great. It is it's really going to be great. And our guest really needs no introduction. For those of you who are just learning about him, Dr. Barna is often called the most quoted person in the Christian church today. George Barna is a professor at Arizona Christian University, ACU, and the director of research at the Cultural Research Center at ACU. He also founded what many of you know as Barna Group, a research company that for years has set the standard for understanding trends in American culture. Dr. Barna is the author of more than 50 books, including numerous award winners, New York Times bestsellers. He's a fellow at the Townsend Institute and has taught at the undergrad and grad levels, as well as pastored two churches. And we are so glad to say welcome and spend some time together today. Dr. Barna, I remember being 16 years old, sitting through a service at the church that I grew up at, Cedar Valley Church in Minnesota, and my youth pastor at the time, Jeremy Chapman, got up, preached a message. And all I remember from that morning is he shared your research, quoted you, and said that six out of 10 young adults who grow up in the church leave by the time they reach college. And I just have to say that messed with me. I experienced personally people I grew up going to church with exit the faith. Mm -hmm. Um, I also watched a different group of people who were outside of 
the church or Christian faith really come to know Jesus. And there was like a mini revival that happened in my graduating class. And um, in one way, you're really the reason, uh, one of the reasons that God has used uh, as, as to why this podcast even exists, because <laughs> your research, I would describe it was like a pebble in my sock that God used to burden us to create a deep passion for the next generation and give us then in prayer times, a vision for what could be and should mm -hmm. be for the next generation in our world today to serve Christ, to know him, to be known by him, to make his name known. So to kick things off, could you just maybe share some of your story and your passion as, as to how you got into studying the future of the church? You know, it's a, and by the way, thank you. I mean, it's it's exciting to hear a story like that. And over the years, I've been called many things, but a pebble in my sock. I wrote that down. I, I like that. You know, it's kind of cool. I've been called a velvet hammer, you know, a lot of different things, but uh, that's great. Uh, how did I get started? You know, as I've thought about it, I, I think looking back in time, I probably got started when I was six, seven, eight years old. I'm an avid baseball fan, have been as long as I can remember. Praise God. Yeah, yeah. That's why God made baseball, you know, is to keep us on track. But uh, I used to collect baseball cards and all my friends loved the front of the card where it would have the picture of the guy with a bat in his hand or throwing the ball or posing somehow. I didn't care for the front so much. I love the back of the cards, which had that six point type of statistics filling the back of that piece of cardboard. And I would read those. I would memorize those. I would recalculate those. I even wrote to the baseball card company a few times and said, oh, on Orlando Cepeda's card, there's an error in his batting average in 1962. <laughs> awesome. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, so I think that was the beginning of my love for numbers because I realized if you, if you understand them, if you spend time with them, they tell a story. And it can it can be a story that helps you to do something significant, you know, fast forward through grad school and all the degrees and and whatnot. And I had the opportunity to get involved in working in politics as a pollster for a number of different people running for public office, working for state governments, state government departments and whatnot. And uh, that kind of got me into this. And then by God's grace, one day I was working in a big market research firm in Los Angeles and a client came in that represented a lot of different Christian ministries. Wow. And the bosses in my company, nobody was a Christian. Uh, I don't think any of them even believed in God. And uh, so at the end of the meeting, they could tell it wasn't going well. My immediate boss, the senior VP of the company, said to the guy who owned the company, hey, go get that Barna kid. Bring him in here. He talked about being a Christian. Maybe he knows what these people want. And so they brought me in. I was a new Christian. I really didn't know what they want because I really didn't understand the faith yet. But, you know, I was just getting immersed in it. But that uh, put me on the track of realizing, oh, my gosh, I can use all this training and experience I have that I've used for politicians. I've used for General Motors. I've used for Colgate, Palmolive, all these other places. Instead of selling products, I can be helping people to find Jesus Christ. What a blessing that would be. And so, you know, that was 40 some years ago. It's been a remarkable journey. And I'm always grateful to God for finding use for me in his kingdom. Incredible. I just have to know something that other people have to be asking too. Do you have any of those old baseball cards still? 
this is a sad story we don't want to spend a lot of time on because I'll cry. But no. uh, when I when I went off to college and then grad school, my younger brother, 15 years younger than me, also came to love baseball. And one day, I, I think they were under my bed or in my closet at home. Uh, he found my baseball card collection, boxes and boxes of them. And he was so intrigued. He took them out and he was looking at them. He thought, this is great. And he started cutting out the faces of all the players <laughs> and making collages of, oh, look, here, I have the Kansas City Royal. Look, here are the New York Yankees. I came home, you know, I, I could be in heaven now for murdering him, you know, and going to jail. But yeah, it, it's not a pretty picture. Oh my gosh. I thought you were going to say he was entrepreneurial and at least leveraged his time to sell them and make a profit, but obviously he made a collage instead. No. And, and you know, Micah, the worst part about it was that I had inherited my father's baseball collection. Oh, so, I mean, we had Lou Gehrig, we had Ted Williams, we had Mel Ott, priceless baseball cards. And now I see these little cutout pieces of cardboard glued to a piece of paper with the rest of the cards, who knows where. Yeah, it's it's it. Life gets ugly sometimes. I probably would have cried. Sorry for your loss. I'll try to get a hold of you and send you maybe a little gift pack with some. <laughs> I still have mine. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, oh, I love it. Well, Doctor George, we are just thrilled to have you. And it sounds like you became a Christian and found Christ when you were a young adult, probably between the ages of eighteen and thirty. Is that correct? Yeah, it was while I was in grad school, actually, and the school had nothing to do with it. Uh, it, it had to do with our marriage. My wife and I went to get married and uh, the, the church that we were getting married in uh, did some things that, that were not good. And so we left that church, but we didn't know where else to go. We wound up going to a small fundamentalist church. We didn't know anything about the Bible because the church we've been going to was not a Bible teaching church. Um, and And we wound up finding Christ through that ministry. So yeah, it was, I think I was 25. My wife was 24. That's amazing. Well, we define, at least in our ministry and the ministries we've led, our young adults between the ages of 18 to 30 is how we've kind of categorized. So I would just play off that question that Josiah had previously asked you. Why do you believe that young adult ministry is so important? You know, this is where you're trying to figure out who you are. Who did God make you to be? What's your place in the world? Uh, how do you want to be perceived by other people, the reputation you want to have? And uh, that, that's a critical time in life. I, I found that there are four different phases of life. Uh, one is between 15, 18 months of age and age 13. That's when a person's worldview is developed. Wow. It's between the teen and teen years and in your 20s that we then kind of work on that worldview a little bit. We, we test it, we refine it, we figure out how to articulate it, how to implement it. And then from our 30s on is a period of time until our mid 60s or so, where we, come, we become evangelists for that worldview. We want other people to believe what we believe, other people to do what we do, because it gives us a sense of power, it gives us the sense that we're right. Look, other people are doing it. It must make sense. And then in your mid sixties and beyond is a time of reflection where you look back and say, gee, did I get it right? And it's like your last opportunity to change your worldview and what you're living for and how you're living and based on all those years of experience. So yeah, that, that period of time in your teens and twenties 
critical shaping time where you're taking what you learned when you were young and figuring out, am I ready to live with this for the rest of my life? That's incredible. Just, this is my thought just right now is recognizing, you know, I have parents, they're in their sixties and they're realizing that there's more life behind them than in front of them. And I think that that's a scary thought that I have for them, but also realizing in your twenties, you pro- you hopefully have more life in front of you than behind. Yep. So if you can, you know, if God can capture your heart and you can understand who he calls you to be and who he says you are, and you can say yes to him at a young age, Wow, that sets you up for decades of a whole different life instead of trying to play catch up once you're 60 and looking back and having all those realizations or all those regrets or all those, I don't know, pivotal moments that you have to look back on and you're like, oh, but if I only knew Christ and if I only knew what it meant to be a Christian or, you know, fill in the blank for everybody, but. Well, exactly, Micah. And, you know, Dr. Barna, you've done some new research specifically on millennials. Um, I've learned things just by reading it that mm-hmm. they're currently the largest population of any living generation in America. And I'd just be curious myself, Micah, and the mm-hmm. listener today, what stands out to you about millennials that pastors, leaders, and maybe passionate Christ followers should know about this generation? Well, there, there were several things that stunned me and and kind of moved me to shift some of the emphasis of my own ministry as a result of finding these things out. One of those is the fact that, and, and I'll just give you, you know, four facts, and then we can dive deeper into any of them that you want to, but one of those would be the fact that 75% of millennials say that they're searching for purpose in life. Mm. They don't know why they're alive. They don't know what gives meaning to their life. And so they're really wrestling with, why should I get out of bed in the morning? They don't have that driving, clear sense of here's who I am. Here's what I can contribute to the world. The second thing that, that stunned me had to do with health issues. And I found that 54% of millennials admit to having mental or emotional health problems that are somewhat debilitating. I mean, we found that 54% of them admitted to saying that uh, they frequently uh, feel anxiety or depression or unsafe as they go about their day. Wow. And again, that, I mean, that's, that's a paralyzing reality when you're in the midst of that. And if we're finding 54% admit it, the number is probably actually a fair amount higher Mm -hmm. because that's a hard thing to admit to other people. Uh, A third thing that that came out of the research that was really important for me to understand is that while millennials tend to be kind of optimistic and energetic and upbeat and aggressive about life, they're really having a hard time with relationships. They know that relationships are important. They want meaningful, lasting relationships, reliable friendships, and and intimacy with other people to be part of their life. But what we found is they're telling us it's not happening, Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do about it. And then the fourth major finding for me was that only 4% of millennials have a biblical worldview. Wow. I mean, that's that's mind-blowing because what that means is that 96 out of every 100 millennials are making 
every decision that they make, not based on the truth principles that God's given to us in the Bible, right. but based primarily, according to them, on their feelings. Right. How do they feel? How is something going to make them feel? You know, what works best for them, in, uh, that, that, the impressions that they have about that. So those four things to me mm -hmm. really stood out as telling me this in many ways is a generation in crisis. I mean, every generation to some extent has their own crises, but, but if you look at these four things, these are huge. And so my, the reason for doing this research was to find these very kinds of things and to bring them before leaders in our country, particularly faith leaders, and say, you know what, our job is not only to know, love, and serve God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul, but to follow the Genesis 12 principle of I've been blessed, therefore, to be a blessing to others. Mm -hmm. And the more that I can understand the, the obstacles, the pain, the suffering, the difficulties, the hardships that they're wrestling with, maybe I can be part of the solution to what they're, they're troubled by. And so that's what this report is meant to do is to wake us up to say, you know what, here's a group of people that we've been called to love. Here are some ways that maybe we can love them most emphatically and most helpfully. That's amazing. I think every, those four things, I think you definitely observe the right things because oh my gosh. back in 2000, the fall of 2005, I went to a Christian Catholic Benedictine school in North Dakota. And I, these four things all true because I'm a millennial. So they're all true. I relate to that. And uh, I can see that in the classmates that I was around the campus itself. And then fast forward, going back to school again um, in downtown Minneapolis, where I went to school for two years to finish another four years uh, degree. And same four things. <clears throat> the number one question I get from they're probably not considered millennials, it's probably a generation below Gen but, Z, but they are still asking the relationship factor. They're like, Micah, how do you make friends? How do you keep friends? How do you, what do you do for fun that can, you know, keep your emotions and your mental and your physical body in shape, you know? And even though it's a Christian school, their biblical worldview was still very small. And even just leading, I mean, when we teach and preach, we're, we're on stage for like a half an hour doing this message. And one kid raises his hand and at the end of it, he goes, what's a Moses? You know, so you're saying, what is a Moses? Well, did you not listen to the whole story? Like, so sometimes we forget that this is the first time right. many individuals, whether millennials or Gen Z are coming across um, the word of God in a way that they don't understand. They've never heard it. It's falling on their ears for the first time, you know? Exactly. And I just want to hop in and say that I pray that God would give us wisdom, knowledge, discernment. Mm -hmm empowered by the Holy spirit as Christian leaders, whether you're on a college campus ministering in a local church or in your community to take what Dr. Barna just outlined and apply it. And, and the work you're doing, it matters. It is meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I pray that you see a new merit to it right. and a new level of validation to reaching the next generation is worth everything. The, their faith is worth everything. Well, yeah, I think even as a leader listening, I think one thing that we run into is many pastors and people that we, you know, come in contact with or rub shoulders with, 
they're not being discipled or they're not, they don't have anybody mentoring them personally. They've become their own mentor. And I think that's super challenging to hear, like as God grows a platform, you know, organically from his hand, or if you become something overnight, just because of social media, I think that's one thing to take into consideration. So I just want to pick your brain on the question of, can you share what you've been finding in regards to the aspect of biblical literacy discipleship, in addition to that worldview. So those three things, what have you been finding in that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Michael, what you brought up about uh, the, the possibility of mentoring is so critical. I had done a, a large study, not this particular one, but one previously that came out in the book called Maximum Faith, because what I was trying to identify there is how does God transform people's lives? Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? What's the process we go through? And found that there are typically 10 stops on a journey. We can go as far as we want. God doesn't force us. It's our choice. That, that's the whole free will aspect. But those people who go the farthest down that pathway toward Christ mm-hmm. are the ones who usually are, are willing to find somebody who's one or two stops farther ahead on the journey. In other words, somebody who's a little bit more spiritually mature than they are. Right. And they're willing to go up to them and say, you know what? I'm trying to figure this all out. I need some help. You seem to be making some progress. I think probably you've learned some things I haven't yet. Would you be willing to spend time with me and just, you know, build this bridge with me and, and we'll we'll talk about these things and and I'd like to give you permission if you're willing to you know, hold me accountable for some of these kinds of things that I could grow into. And, and I, I encourage you to encourage me when I get some things right, because I need to hear that. Yeah. And what we found is that people tend not to grow by hearing sermons or lectures or going to events. I mean, there, there can be some growth that happens there, but, but the majority of the growth that happens is in that interaction between these two people who develop that kind of intimacy not sexual intimacy, a spiritual intimacy, where they're willing to talk about these deep things of life and get in each other's face and encourage each other and push each other. I mean, that's all part, that's how we grow. And what it reminded me of after I I, I looked at that research, I thought, wait a minute, where have I seen this before? (gasps) Jesus, that's what he did. (laughs) (laughs) He took 12 numbskulls, you know, who had nothing going for them. You know, and he was a little farther down the road than them quite a bit, actually. But, you know, he was willing to spend time with them and challenge them and encourage them and have shared experiences with them where they could learn lessons together and talk about what they learned. You know, and, and, and ultimately, I think it all comes back to what Jesus said about who is a disciple. You know, and and in John 8, John 13, and John 15, he gave us the three qualifications of a disciple, you know, where in John 8, he talked about, uh, you will be my disciples when you obey my teachings. Mm -hmm. And then in John 13, he said, you'll be my disciples when you love one another. And then in John 15, he said, you'll be my disciples when you produce much fruit. And he wasn't talking about apples and oranges. He was talking about spiritual fruit. You know, when you're investing spiritually in the lives of other people and the way that you use the gifts and the resources you have bears fruit for the kingdom of God, those kinds of things. So, I mean, to me, this is all part of that issue that we have to wrestle with in our culture today. Yes, we have to contextualize this. Absolutely. There's no simple formula. 
with every person in every situation, it may look differently. The truths of God don't change, but the ways that we make those relevant to people, that will change where we bring that timeless truth into that situation. But it all it all starts with relationships. It's not about the big events. It's about the relationships. Right. You know, I uh, love what you're talking about, and Micah has as well with mentoring. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely deeply burdened about the next generation now of millennials and Generation Z, and the plural generations to come. Right. It's it's a passion point of mine, and yet I am so drawn personally into mentorship. There have been so many people who've invested in me that I've asked them those questions. And I I think of like, what does this look like practically with mentoring? Mm -hmm. I I just want to honor somebody named Kathy Stranquist. She was the pastor's wife at the church I grew up at. And the first Thursday night of every month, she had a group of young ladies over Mm -hmm. and she just invested into them, poured her life into them. Just they studied the scripture together. There was discipleship and mentorship in that community Mm -hmm. relationship of like a small group. And she just recently passed away, went to to heaven to be with the Lord. And I heard of another young pastor's wife who kind of picked up the mantle and started a first Thursdays group for the next generation of women in her church. And and I love that. I think that, isn't it interesting that we're having a conversation about the faith of the next generation and the answer might be discipleship intergenerationally with mentorship. And that's such a key component. Like we're all wanted and needed and valuable in God's eyes, in our eyes, in his kingdom. And I'd just be curious to pick your brain on your thoughts on how do we reach and retain this generation as well as the ones to come? Well, uh, the more I look at research, you know, I've been doing this since Moses crossed the sea, but (laughs) it feels that way anyway. Uh, You know, a lot of research and, and, and really what it keeps coming back to is people. It's not about programs. It's about people. And so that, that, emphasis on building the relationships is critical. And frankly, I mean, that is something that this millennial research has shown is that they're struggling to make lasting, deep, meaningful relationships because uh, number one, they don't trust other people. Number two, they don't respect other people. Number three, they're intolerant of different ideas. Even though they're a generation that is known for waving the flag of tolerance, as we had a whole module in the survey about tolerant behavior. And what we found is that compared to other generations, they're less tolerant than other generations. So, you know, those things really have to be in place. But then embedded within those relationships, you know, we've talked about this mentoring or coaching component. And, and part of that I've found comes back to what this generation relates to, which is stories. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, of course, was a master storyteller. Yeah. Paul was a master storyteller. Yeah. You know, you look at the people who made the big difference. They were the ones who were willing to observe what was going on, put it through that worldview grid, that biblical truth mindset, and then talk about well, here's what happened. Here's what could have happened. Let's think about what you could do, you know, and and tell it as a story. So rather than beating people over the head with the Bible and say, but the Bible says in, you know, John 13, 6, you know, what we do is we tell them a story 
And we say, and you know what? Here's how I've experienced that. Mm-hmm. I went through this situation where yada, yada, yada. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's a softer way of getting people to think through, oh, maybe there's a different way of doing it than the way I've been doing it. Maybe there's a better way of doing it than my generation has been uh, proposing. And, and then the, you, you kind of seal the deal by modeling that behavior. Because one of the things that we found in this millennial study is that they, they actually like Jesus. They're okay with the Bible. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have much to do with churches, organized religion, or confessing Christians. Mm-hmm. Wow. And the reason we discovered for that is they say they're hypocrites. They say they believe something, but I watch them. I don't see that. And so the, the, the kind of the, the final beating of the hammer onto the nail to drive that thing home is you got to live it. You can't just talk about it. You got to live it. And so that really, I think, is another one of those keys to discipleship. I think that's so good. I was just listening yesterday to um, a podcast with, by the, with, with Andy Stanley, and he's in a series called Is Christianity Good? And he's talking basically what you're just saying and unpacking is, well, the people that they've been turning to as, you know, uh, observing our lives as so-called Christians and the encounters they've had with us, we should be the most giving, loyal faith-filled, encouraging, joyful people. But when people meet us, not us, but us as a whole, I'd be curious to see like, what is their true reaction to our own behavior? You know, so he's just breaking it down is, is it really good? And what paint, what picture have we painted for the non-believer as Christians? And maybe you've already touched on this a little bit, Dr. George, but I was just curious if you could describe the, the current state of the church. And if you were to just elaborate on that. Could you paint a picture of the current state of the church in America? Gee, we were having such a fun time. And then you ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> That's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the way things are right now, I mean, we, we definitely need a period of reconsideration and recalibration. What we find is that fewer people are going to church. Fewer people believe in the Bible. The fastest growing faith group in America today is what I've labeled the don'ts. Mm. These are people who don't know if God exists, don't believe that God exists, or don't even care if God exists. I mean, that's more than one out of three adults in America today. Among millennials, it's it's about 40%, uh, you know, and that's growing. Uh, you know, the Bible, only four out of 10 Americans believe that the Bible is uh, the, the true, relevant, and reliable word of God for people's lives today. The local church is not seen as a place of love. It's seen as a place of criticism and negativity for the most part, not every church, but most churches. Uh, So we have a lot of rebuilding to do Mm -hmm. in terms of our reputation. And again, so much of that comes from the fact that we're not being taught the deep truths of scripture. And you can't give what you don't have. Yeah. So if we're not getting that, we can't be giving it. I mean, it's the same thing that I talk about when I speak to parent groups. And they say, oh, gosh, what should we do? And I say, look, I'm not here to condemn you because I know that only 7% of parents of kids under the age of 13 have a biblical worldview. And you can't give what you don't have. 
So that means that 93% of our parents who are the single most significant players in the formation of the worldview of their children, they can't give a biblical worldview. So naturally they're going to give, you know, other perspectives, other worldviews, whether it's Marxism, postmodernism, secular humanism, Eastern mysticism, or the actual dominant worldview in America today, which is syncretism, which means we're so confused that we don't even land on one holistic, comprehensive worldview like those that I just identified. What we do instead is we pick and choose items from each of those. We throw them together into a unique mixture that feels good to us, seems right in our own eyes. Gee, where have we heard that phrase before? And then we run with that as our worldview, that syncretism. 88% of Americans are described by syncretism rather than some other existing worldview. So when we talk about the church, you know, I would say one of the things that we want to do in the future is to be investing most of our resources into children, because that's where their worldview develops. Your worldview is the basis on which you make every decision you ever make. Mm -hmm. And so if our culture is not in a good place, it's because we made a lot of bad decisions. And those bad decisions are because we have the wrong worldview. And so we need to get children where that worldview is developed and it doesn't change a whole lot after the age of 13. That's key. But then that means that the church also needs to be investing a lot of resources in this age group, the 18 to 35 to 40 age group, mm -hmm. because that's our primary parenting cohort. Right. And we want to be equipping them to be to, to have the goods to give to their children so yeah. that together as a family, they can grow up honoring God, expanding the kingdom of God, blessing people every chance they get. That starts in the family. Now, there's going to be competition. We know the media is the single most effective thing on the development of a worldview. You know, parents are the players who can make the biggest difference in that. That means that parents have to, you know, uh, minimize, monitor, mediate, and moralize the media that their children are exposed to. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, the church can play a huge role in that in terms of sharing this kind of information to open our eyes, teaching us God's words so that we understand the principles to live by, that we grasp and own God's truth. That's really the key to the process. So, Dr. Barna, in light of what you just shared in this present moment, are you optimistic looking at the future? A lot of people tend to ask me that. Now, I'm called a pessimist. I don't think I'm a pessimist. I look at the data. I interpret it. I'm a realist. Yes. So it is what it is. Yes, I'm not making this up. We yeah, I, I wouldn't make it up. If, if I were making something up, this is not what I would make up. Let me tell you. Um, am I an optimist? I'm an optimist in the sense that I know that God will prevail. I'm an optimist in the sense that I know that every single human being can be forgiven. Every single person has hope for eternity. I'm an optimist in the sense that I know that when God chooses to transform a culture, he doesn't wait to do it until he has a majority of people on his side. He always uses a small group of passionate followers of Christ that the scriptures call a remnant. And he will take that remnant and he will give them what they need to do what needs to be done. And I am confident that even looking at 6% of American adults who have a biblical worldview, some people say, oh my gosh, we lost the war. No, that's 15 million people. Yeah. 
And with 15 million people in America today, you could turn this nation upside down. Those people have that passion and that understanding, that biblical understanding. They can do it through the blessing and, and the empowerment of God with his Holy Spirit. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and our willingness to do what he calls us to do, when he calls us to do it, how he's prepared us to do it. So in that sense, yeah, I'm an optimist. Spot on. I'm encouraged by that, Dr. Bernard. I really trust that God is using you as a prophetic voice of wisdom in this generation today. And I hope and trust that our response to this information is that it would be a pebble in our shoes, that maybe God Mm -hmm. would use it to burden our hearts, Mm -hmm. to draw us, to depend on him Mm -hmm. and not on ourselves, not on what we know, but truly to depend on the power of God through the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection of Jesus. And may this be a wake up call to me, Mm -hmm. to us and, and to the church at large that we have a role to play and we're invited into God's kingdom story so that the next generations can know about him. Mm -hmm. And I look at our life in this present moment of we've been married almost five years Mm -hmm. and um, we have two little girls. Aurora is a year and a half. Avalon is just weeks old. And I am optimistic when I look at the future. And yet I I don't want to do this where many times there's a problem and we can have a tendency to ignore it. And that's Mm -hmm. called false harmony. Where we like, because pretending the problem doesn't exist, doesn't make it go away. It actually might make it worse. Whereas if we can confront it and be direct and be humble about it to recognize that there's a problem, the building's on fire, let's do something about it. And so I'm filled with vigor and, and just, I I'm like excited because let's go, we've got to do this. And, um, was there anything you wanted to ask on that? Sure. No, I just okay. want to get to the fun stuff because that was a heavy topic and it a heavy was. conversation with, with great insight. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing and going there. But are you ready, Dr. Barna, for a home run derby? Well, we'll find out. I, I don't want to strike out. So let, let's find out how well I do. <laughs> All right. Well, here you go. We have five questions in five minutes. So it's rapid fire thoughts. So it's called five and five. I can kick us off with one question I've written down here. And sorry to bring the baseball card thing, but if you, <laughs> it, who is your favorite baseball player of all time? Mickey Mantle. Ooh, good answer. So cool. That is so cool. When I was young, I grew up, you know, I was born in New York City, grew up in New York. And my father used to take me to Yankee games. And uh, I, I just thought Mickey Mantle was larger than life. You know, and late in his life, he accepted Christ as his savior. So I, I was so excited and blessed by that. So that's a good thing. That's fun. That is encouraging. I grew up going to the baseball games with my dad, the Minnesota that's Twins. Great. And man, it's exciting. How about this, Dr. Barnard? Are there any words that you live by, things that you hold on to or close to your heart? You know, uh, uh, there are different ways of doing that. And for me, sometimes there are some verses from the scripture that that I like to keep reminding myself about for various reasons. But one of those is that our, my purpose in life is to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, mind, strength, and soul, and to love others in that same way. And I don't always accomplish that, but I, I need to keep going back to that and to remember that that's why I'm here. And uh, yeah, I, I, that, that's what comes to mind. 
All right, here's the curve wall of the home run derby. If you could uh -oh. ask Josiah and myself one question today, what would you ask us? Uh, I, I, you know, I was intrigued by hearing about your daughters. And for me, that's such a, 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 an important thing in life. And so I, I would ask, how are you planning to raise them in a media and technology saturated environment in relation to those two things, media and technology? Yeah. You want to answer it? Yeah. We're <laughs> learning. We haven't figured it out, but we are having these conversations now because what I'm amazed is at 18 months, how much vocabulary and retention and understanding and awareness that our daughter Aurora has. And she's so fun. Her favorite show right now is Mickey and Minnie Mouse on Disney plus. And we do allow TV in the house. We do allow some entertainment that is wholesome. And uh, we, at the same time, I adopted this phrase, we're out of TV minutes. We're not going <laughs> to sit here all day. So I asked her, do you have an imagination? Do you want to play with Play-Doh? You want to play with Mr. Potato Head? And, and then, um, so that's as far as the media side is, yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, be, I think we want to encourage her to be a contributor and not just a consumer of right. content. Right. And yeah. then. Our, I think our hope is to raise daughters or children that come to know Jesus in our home, mm -hmm. that they do see it modeled, and that, that we live in community. There's some other young couples that attend our church or that we're in close proximity and community with. And that is really important that they meet people like Jerry Stranquist, Greg Lins, Brent Silkey, and Elisa, mm -hmm. Steph and Micah Mack. The Bauman's, the Maze, just other people that we want them to be surrounded by. What else would you add? Oh, I would definitely say I feel like God spoke this to me even before we had children, and it was it's either you can raise your children or you can have somebody else raise them through social media, and that's just one thing that I don't want to miss is like we have an opportunity to steward their lives, and God has entrusted both these daughters to us, and so. On addition to what Josiah said with the media and the technology is three prayers that I've had within that is I want our children to be gritty. I want them to be able to have some grit and to, to know who they are and whose they are. So coming back to, you know, media side, instead of watching it, we're going to read about it through the word of God. We have our little Bibles and probably have like six different little Bibles. And she's able to identify Moses, the animals, like Jesus, um, Noah's Ark, like all the different things as we go through the pages. And so, you know, to have grit and to know what the Bible says, starting at a young age and reading that instead of watching it, um, problem solving, having the ability to problem solve and to think for yourself in addition to critical thinking. So for instance, even today, she had three Play-Dohs out. She had pink, orange, and yellow, and she can put the lid and match the color of what's Play-Doh colors inside. And she accidentally put the wrong color inside and she had to think through and problem solve to take it out put the right color in and put the proper color of the lid on. So I just watched her and I was just like, okay, she's in a problem solve right now. She sees that she made a mistake, but I'm going to let her think this through and figure it out. So she puts all the lids on done, done. I did it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, yeah. so those are some things that we have in our house, our activities um, to, you know, expand the imagination and the mind that, and creativity that God's given all of us. It's just a matter of how we're going to tap into that. So maybe that's a long answer to a short question. Beautiful. <laughs> that's great. You know, and the other thing with my grandchildren, I try to spend a lot of time with them, you know, doing these same kinds of things. And, 
And one of the things that that I have to keep reminding them, because it's natural that the siblings would fight over stuff. You know, I keep telling them, but but remember, your job is to love and protect each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're always like, oh, grandpa, okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but you know, continually reminding them of those key principles, core principles yeah. of you know, you're here to bless your sister, you're here to take care of your brother. You know, and and you know they rethink things, but like you say, they solve the problem. They figure out how to do it. You know, you can't do it for them. They've got to figure it out. Yeah, it's great. And back to you with question four. We're curious about. We learned about baseball and baseball cards. Thrilled about that. Any other hobbies or activities or passions that you like to do outside of work? Well, I think you can see, I don't know if this is going video or just audio, but behind me, you can see, I have a, a wall filled with guitars. I was curious uh, about that. Me too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, music is, is a huge thing for me. I, I, I think I tend to be a, a creative person, you know, so I've written a lot of books and, you know, hundreds of articles and that kind of thing. So I create that kind of content. If I wasn't able to do that, I'd probably be creating musical content. Because I, I love to play. I played in bands for years and, you know, just find music fascinating. And of course, those people who teach about music, they talk about music being a mathematical process. And given that what I do here is I analyze statistics, you know, to write the books and <laughs> speak and whatnot, you know, it all kind of fits together in a wacky kind of way. That's fun. Okay. Could you play us a little tune or ditty right now? I could not. Okay. I was just kidding. That's not the next question. I was just teasing you. The last and final question. Now this is YouTube will cancel you so fast. Okay. You know, don't go for that reason. Our daughter would go like this. She'd go more, more. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's too fun. Okay. The last and final question. If we were to hand you the microphone and you were in front of college pastors and young adult ministry leaders, what would you leave them with today? You have one thing to say to them. What would you share? Worldview is everything. We win or lose the game based on worldview. And worldview has to be based on God's truth. We have so much evidence that, you know, we didn't even touch upon looking at what happens if you do not embrace a biblical worldview. And, you know, when I work with uh, Christian school teachers across the country, I, I spend an hour and a half just unpacking some of that for them, letting them know when you're in the classroom, you have an incredible opportunity to be showing them how God's world works and develop their worldview so that when they walk out of here, they're not going to fall for the lies, deceptions, and manipulations of the world because they're outside that door waiting for these kids to emerge. And so you take advantage of the opportunity you have to be evaluating their worldview and changing it as need be with people, you know, past the ages of 12, 13, 14, it's hard work because they've already got a worldview. And so what you've got to do is get rid of the one that they have, which is hard work, Mm -hmm. takes time. They're going to fight it. And then once you get rid of it, you got to replace it with something better, which is God's view. And that's going to take time and that's going to be hard. So this is not an overnight process. Be committed to your people. Recognize that you need to stick with them. You need to stay the course in terms of worldview development. And when you do, that's how you revolutionize the nation. That's incredible. 
Incredible is right. I was just going to say that, babe. And Dr. Barna, we just want to honor you and acknowledge you for the way that God's used you Mm -hmm. instrumentally in our generation and in my life specifically, in our marriage, Mm -hmm. in the ministry, and even as parents. And so we just want to also thank you for your time investing into Micah and I and into the audience of young adults today. Uh, Josiah, Micah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I hope I said something of value, but you know, the fact that you all are young adults who are serious about serving God, you asked before if I'm optimistic. When I see a couple like you, that gives me reason to have hope. So, you know, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. And if you want to find out more about Dr. George Barna, his books, and his latest research, whether it's on postmodernism as well as millennials, we'll link it in the show notes. You can visit our website at youngadults.today, as well as across social media is at youngadults.today. Thanks so much. Until next time. Thanks for listening to today's conversation on the Young Adults Today podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'm getting charged up right now, yeah.